Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank, thank you to Patricia for inviting me here to Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also really nice to meet you. And what a beautiful room this is. This is amazing. So, also, um, uh, since I was in London in uh, July, seeing many of you, Holly and so on. Oh, no, you weren't there. <laughs> yeah. um, Dixie? Um, uh, I've been on the road for three months. So when I was on the airplane uh, coming to Berlin, two and two of those months with my children, which is really intense. <laughs> so um, when I was on the plane coming to Berlin, I thought, oh, I wish I was just going home. <laughs> I'm ready to go home. And then uh, uh, after arriving here, I've had uh, my guardian angels, Robert, who are here taking such good care of me with his family, especially um, his wife's wonderful little children. <laughs> well, not so little, I guess. And, um, and also uh, Agatha and her new dog, Kobe. <laughs> so um, it's so great to come to a city and uh, feel the support of um, community. So, I've been re-inspired uh, studying the Yoga Sutra for year number 25. <laughs> and so I wanted to look at a couple of the sentences from the Yoga Sutra that we're going to work on this weekend. You're going to have a handout tomorrow. Um, through the lens of Zen practice. And that's what we're going to do tonight, if that's okay. I hope you don't have any objections to this. Mm -hmm. uh, near the end of the second chapter of the Yoga Sutra, uh, Patanjali says that uh, the postures of meditation, asana, uh, should embody uh, stira, steadiness, and uh, sukha, a sweetness. So uh, the postures of meditation mean uh, everything. Because everything that you do is a yoga posture. Everything. If you sit here really, really still, 
um, you want to have a balance between a deep earthiness, real calmness, and energy. If you have too much energy when you're sitting, then um, it will uh, turn into agitation and impatience. And if you have too much calmness, it gets sleepy. And you'll never maybe even get up from sitting. So you want to have this balance between uh, steadiness and sukha, a sweetness, calmness, tranquility. Um, and then if you think about that, if you can train in that, then you can start to see how you can do this uh, in daily life. When you're in relationship with people, you want to have this balance between a steadiness, real steadiness, and also a sense of vitality and a sense of uh, energy. When you cook, you want this also. You want to have uh, energy and you want to have uh, calmness. I can't think of anything, actually, where you wouldn't want to have a good balance between both of these uh, qualities. Then he says, or she says, because we have no idea who Patanjali is, um, then Patanjali says that um, when there's steadiness and ease in the meditation posture, and here he's talking about formal meditation, getting really still, then after a while your breath relaxes so much that you can't tell the difference between inhaling and exhaling. And then he says this is called pranayama, which is not how most of us think about pranayama. So he says pranayama, pranayama, is the ayamaing of prana. In other words, when you're meditating, you're noticing the inhale and exhale, but after a while, you're just feeling breathing until the breath becomes so natural that you can't tell whether you're inhaling or exhaling. In other words, the breath gets so shallow. You're feeling the breath, but it's really, really shallow. And when you can't tell the difference between inhaling and exhaling, that's pranayama. Isn't that interesting? And then, and this is the sentence I want to focus on tonight, then he says what happens is um, your mind stops creating opposites. Isn't that interesting? Then the habit of creating opposites, inside, outside, me, and what's arising, subject, object, it starts to dissolve. Isn't that fascinating? So let's check out if this is true in our experience. So you're sitting. If the posture is a little bit too uptight, there's not going to be any tranquility. And I think we've all had that experience, right? Where you're sitting and you're just like holding on for dear life, hoping the bell will come really soon. And when we're on retreat, I always say this to the timekeeper, is that when it's time to ring the bell, do it really slowly. Because there's always someone in the room who's trying to kill you with their imagination. Ring the bell, ring the bell. You know? So just, that person's watching you, so just go really slow. <laughs> it's a teaching, right? So you want to have this balance between steadiness and ease. Then the breath becomes so relaxed 
that you can't tell the difference between inhaling and exhaling. Have you had this experience? The breath just gets so gentle, and then the mind stops creating opposites. So interesting. So, here's a story. This is from uh, case 55 of a Zen collection of koans, of teachings, of phrases, uh, called the Blue Cliff Record. Um, so listen carefully. This is a really wonderful teaching. It's called Dao Wu's Condolence Call. Do you know what a condolence call is? When, when, it, when it's time, when someone's passed away, the, uh, the priest will come or the teacher will come to their house and um, uh, speak with the family and visit the corpse who's often displayed in a coffin. Uh, this is a condolence call. Um, in, uh, uh, when, when these teachings moved from China to Japan, this all would have happened in a temple. Uh, but this Zen story is a, is a Chinese story. So uh, the local teacher would have gone to somebody's house to make a condolence call, uh, to visit the family and to visit the corpse, um, who was probably not displayed in a coffin, but just in a coffin. So this is about a master and a student uh, who go to uh, this person's house a long, long time ago in uh, ancient China. But for you, it's probably helpful to imagine that this is happening this week uh, in your neighborhood. Dawu and Qian Yan went to a house to make a condolence call. When they were leaving, Yuan, who's the student, knocked on the coffin. Could you imagine this? They're leaving, and the, the teacher's leaving first, the student's behind the teacher, and the student knocks on the coffin and says to his teacher, Alive or dead? And the teacher, Wu, says, I won't say. Alive? I won't say dead. And Yuan says, uh, Why won't you say? And Wu, his teacher, says, I won't say. I won't say. Then, as they were leaving the building, uh, the student says, Teacher, you have to tell me right away. If you don't tell me, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> Some of you know usually it's the teacher hits the student. The student's saying, if you don't tell me, I'm going to hit you. And the teacher says, you can hit me, but I won't say. And so Yuan hit him. <laughs> That's a story. <laughs> I love this story so much because um, the student is so eager and is so burning to know that he'll hit his teacher. And the story from the perspective of the teacher is a really good teaching story because uh, the teacher keeps holding the student in this question that the student has and driving the question deeper into the student's heart and keep saying, I won't say, I won't say. You can hit me, but I won't say. I think that's the art of uh, teacher-student relationships, right? 
the student is like pushing and pushing the teacher. And the teacher is like, I can't say it for you. You have to say it. I can't say it. If I tell you, then that's not your response. So this is a very good uh, dynamic. Actually, we could just talk the whole night about this. Um, anyways, the story goes on. Uh, later, many years later, uh, Da Wu, the teacher, uh, dies. And Yuan went to Shishuang, uh, found a new teacher, and brought up this story that he'd been... And you don't, we don't, actually don't know how many years that is. Maybe it's like 10 or 20 years later. All this time he's working with this thing that happened at this funeral. Does everybody have a story like this? You know, you're working with this question, and when you think about it, you've been working on it since you were six. You know? So now here he is, his teacher wouldn't answer. He hit his teacher, his teacher still wouldn't answer. And now, let's say 20 years later, he finds a new teacher, Shi Shuang, and brings up the story. Tells the whole story. He said, I won't say, I won't say, I hit him. He still says, I won't say, I won't say. And so he asks, Shuang, alive or dead? And Shuang says, I won't say alive. I won't <laughs> say dead. And then Qian Yuan says, uh, why won't you say? And the teacher says, uh, I won't say. And as he says it, Yuan's heart opens, and he has, according to the story, a very deep uh, insight. Took him two times with this teacher. Alive or dead? When someone dies, are they alive or are they dead? It's hard to know. Um, one of the teachings here is that uh, when you practice um, wholeheartedly, then all your ideas about uh, your life will fall away. And that this is a really good thing. And this is what we call yoga practice, which is the intimacy that happens when your ideas about your life fall away. Like maybe even right now I'm speaking and you can't hear the story because you're just filtering it through like all your ideas about your life, about me, about all the stuff you know. And then like we totally miss it. And maybe this is what was happening for the student here. He got this really good teaching, I won't say, but he couldn't hear it. He couldn't hear the teaching. And this is the best thing about practice, which is that uh, everything in your life will fall away. Everything. And that's the one thing you can really trust, is that all the things you're grasping right now uh, will fall apart. How wonderful. <laughs> but it's worth it, because then we can turn to our lives uh, moment by moment uh, with a full heart. And this is called a non-duality. Non-duality means um, doing something with your whole heart. It means wholehearted activity. You're fully doing something. It's active. 
Non-duality means there isn't a separate you that's watching your experience. You're so deep in experience that your whole heart is in the experience and there's no separation. And when that happens, the world opens up and all the limiting habits and structures that usually define the way we perceive things fall away. Oh, somebody's buzz. Did you hear that? <laughs> I always think that this is the present moment alarm. It's an app that I created. Some of you have downloaded Whenever you're not present, it's just like a little buzz. Sounds like a text. And it just goes off to remind you to come back again. So I'm glad it's working. And what happens um, when we can uh, let go of grasping is that we're uh, not afraid so much of the radical impermanence that our life really is. Uh, we're not so scared of this truth. And then whatever happens for us uh, becomes a blessing. Sometimes the blessing is not what we expect. Like um, a gorgeous bird flying through Berlin in the wrong season. Or what happened to me recently is seeing an owl in the middle of the day. It's a wonderful blessing, but it's all wrong. You shouldn't see an owl in the middle of the day. So it's wrong, but it's still somehow sacred. It's like when you get a good yoga pose. You're internally rotating a bone, externally rotating another bone, internally, externally, back and forth, back and forth, until you can't say. You can't say if it's an internal rotation. You can't say if it's an external rotation. You can't say if it's an inhale. You can't say it's an exhale, because you're right in the experience. As soon as you say, I'm internally rotating, you're not there anymore. Because then there's a you that's internally rotating. You're not actually in the experience anymore. So that's movement practice. But I'm also an ambassador for stillness practice. And one of the things that happens when we get really still is that the breath gets really, really, really quiet. And when you get still, which is something you can't do in asana practice, because the breath is moving so much, um, you can look really deeply in your heart and see your habits. In asana practice, um, the breath never gets still enough for you to see the layers of reactivity that Patanjali is talking about in this section of the Yoga Sutra. And that's probably why lots of people hate sitting still, who are yogis. Because when you sit still, you actually see how much anxiety you have, or how irritated you are, or how angry you are, or how much pain is in your body, or how tired you are. And if you're uh, in this training of getting still, and looking at habits, uh, slowly you start to see that if your heart is closed, and you really see that, um, well, first of all, I think you start to see whether your heart is open or shut, like whether you're open to the present moment, 
open to how you feel, open to thoughts, open to other people, or shut, you start to see it more clearly because you start to see your reactivity more clearly. And if you truly see that, you start to see that it doesn't matter how smart you are, uh, how wealthy you are, how toned your muscles are. Um, it just won't be meaningful. You can have all those things, but there's no meaning in it. Because we're still up here in our reactivity. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, a week ago, I've been staying for one month in this small village, near a small village, in rural Greece. And this village is called Cardiani, which is just above where my family was staying, on an island called Tinos. And one evening, as the sun was setting, I was leaving to go back to the car because there's no lights. So we tried to get out of there by the time it gets dark. And uh, my son's three and a half, one of my sons, and um, he has really long legs. So I was carrying him, you know, and his legs were wrapped around like seven times. <laughs> and um, and uh, we were passing a church, and the sun was setting, and it was really beautiful. And he said he, he wanted to go in the church. So I said, okay, let's, let's go in the church and see what's there. Because he kept asking, because there are more churches on Tinos than there are stores. <laughs> I think there's more churches than people, actually. Um, so we went into the church, and there were two women uh, in the front. And uh, it was totally dark in the church, except for some candles. And it was so quiet. And the two women nodded. And then I noticed there was a man at the back of the church who then looked up who was weeping, man in his 70s, just weeping in the, in the back of the church. And um, I could feel my son's breathing, and we just stood there. And it, it was exactly the same silence as being in a monastery in Japan. It was the same silence as being in a temple it was the same silence as many of you who've been on retreat with me have, have, you feel when you're on retreat. Exactly the same silence. Kind of that experience where just everything drops away. And it has nothing to do with whether you're in a church or whether you're a yogist or whatever. It's just that experience of falling away. And in the yoga tradition, we call this experience of falling away, awakening. Because it's letting go of the daydream that we're so obsessed with all the time, and awakening to what's actually happening in the present. <clears throat> An awakened person is somebody who uh, deeply feels emotions, still has lots of thoughts, but just isn't pushed around as much as we are. They don't have the same kind of addiction and they don't have the same kind of compulsion that most of us live with uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So the basic idea is not that the awakened person is all nice and sweet, although, you know, that would be nice, to be nice and sweet all the time. But rather, the awakened person is um, fully open to the entire range of human experience and emotions. They don't have less of an emotional life. Um, they actually have a richer emotional life because their reactivity is decreased. So they can feel a wider range of emotions. I think some of us feel this when we start to look more closely at the teachings of the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, who uh, describe very clearly uh, their anger. The Dalai Lama, when he describes seeing his people being uh, tortured and hit um, and killed, uh, you can see in his face this like deep grief and anger. But then he doesn't act it out. And he doesn't, uh, he's not like super diplomatic about it. He feels it deeply. You can see it in his face. So that's pretty inspiring, I think. So the awakened person has a kind of wider palette of emotion because they can enter the present moment without creating opposites. Like there's a me that needs to get out of this. And this is true, I think, when we experience pain. Most of us, when we experience pain, we think what we're really experiencing is pain plus the avoidance of pain. But pain itself um, is painful, but it's not that bad. We can endure it. It's not so bad. But pain plus avoidance of pain is really, really bad. But this is the funny thing, and especially those of you who've done a lot of uh, stillness practice, especially in retreat environments, you know that you can have a lot of pain, and right in the middle of it there can be joy. It's the strangest thing. On the cushion, when you sit for a long time, because of the structure of a formal sitting meditation practice, especially for those of you who time it, um, you start to sit long enough to notice the difference between a pain and the avoidance of pain. That's a really important thing to see. And I think um, this is one of the troubles with um, having an asana practice without the stillness practice. Because in the asana practice, when you feel something painful, you just stretch it out. And you just breathe with it, and you move it. But uh, in your life, you're going to experience pain that you can't stretch out. And you can't just breathe through. You actually really need to see the, the, the mental reactivity and the storytelling that you build up around physical and emotional pain. And learn how to kind of get in there and work with that. And eventually, out of uh, agony, um, or maybe because there's just no choice, you just become present. Right? Isn't this true? Like, we all have days in our sitting practice where it's terrible, it's hell. You're sitting and, like, uh, has anyone here ever had the experience where someone's broken up with them? 
Has anyone ever had this before? Do you have that in Berlin? Yeah. No. People never get together. People never get together in Berlin, yeah. Yeah. That was the 80s, actually. Um, it's an amazing thing to sit when you have a really broken heart. Because uh, you sit and you breathe, and you realize that there's no way to get out of this. There's nothing you can do to solve this. Especially if you're out of your 20s. If you're in your 20s, you still think you can solve this problem. <laughs> but once you're out of your 20s, you realize there's no way to solve this issue of having a, a broken heart. And it's even worse if you're um, a yogi. Because if you're a yogi, you're falling in love like all the time. If, like you go to a new city and you're like completely in love with the city and you go to like you meet new people and you're like oh these people are amazing and then you're like your heart's always broken you know and then in that brokenness there's like a deeper love that happens because you're aware over time that the reason why these relationships are so profound is because they're uh, impermanent they're changing so then it makes you want to really be awake for the limited time and, and the fragility and the precariousness of these relationships, you see. And then you start to see that uh, the pain's okay. It's all right. It's just your life. And... Uh, even in the last moment of your life, if there's pain or uh, if there's sorrow, if you can get close enough to that pain and that sorrow, then uh, it's okay. And in Hatha Yoga, this is called uh, Ananda Maya Kosha, which is, uh, the way I translate that is um, that place you feel somatically when everything's okay. It's like the deepest... People translate it as bliss. Uh, but I don't know what that means. To me, that's not my experience. I don't feel it as bliss. I just feel it as, it's okay. It's okay. So, the point here is the experience of staying with something so closely or long enough that it transforms is a really, really important lesson and requires equanimity and patience. You breathe with it. You quietly uh, harmonize your attention with what you're feeling. And then you experience it uh, pass away. And it's a human characteristic to want to avoid pain and unpleasantness. But the problem with that is it becomes generalized in our day. All day we're just trying to get away from little things that make us feel unpleasant or give us pain or discomfort. And you start to see that there's so much of your life that you avoid because you're scared it's going to cause you pain. You don't want to take risks. You want to try and nail down your relationships. You want to, you know, lock in your mortgage. Whatever you can do so you don't feel the pain of change. 
And we say to ourselves, oh, I better not try that. It might work, not work out. And I'll be disappointed and upset. Or, I better not love him. Because if I really love him, uh, I might make myself too vulnerable. Or I better not really embrace the world as it really is. That would be too much to actually look at the way things really are. I better not be transparent because then people might see me. And that would wreck everything because I've been trying so hard to get them to perceive me a certain way. Have you ever tried to influence someone's perception of you? <laughs> I, I had this happen this week. Uh, uh, somebody sent me a poem. And uh, it touched me so much that they sent me a poem. Because to send somebody a poem is like very self-conscious. It can make you, have you ever had, like it's very vulnerable, you know. This is something I love and I'm, I'm sending this to you. And then when they sent me this poem, I thought, this is such a great opportunity. I've been really into this poem. Now I can send it to them. So then I, I sent them this poem back. And then I was so happy. Because then, like, the poems are no longer these private things that we each had in our hearts, but they become something that you can share. And then it's just bigger than us both. When I started out uh, meditating, one of the practices that I got was uh, when you inhale, you say to yourself, uh, alive. And then when you exhale, you say to yourself, uh, dying. You feel like when you inhale, you're living. Exhale, dying. Inhale, living. Exhale. And you might think, oh God, that's so like, it would be so much better to do Pilates, you know, <laughs> whatever they do. Is that what they do then? What's the sound they make in Pilates? Do you know that funny exhale they do? How did they do it, Holly? When I, I was in Copenhagen and we were staying in an apartment in a flat above a Pilates studio and so every morning, instead of the alarm going off, suddenly I would just hear. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't have an orientation for the sound. It was really strange. It's great. So. Time means that we're always alive and we're always dying. Uh, every moment. That, that's what time is. Uh, every breath, we're living and also we're dying. When you're dying, if you're actually dying, and you have a practice, then when you're dying, you're fully dying. So you're not really dying. You're living. And everyone around you is saying, oh, they're dying. But for you, you're not dying. You're living. There's a wonderful Zen teacher who was the first heir of Shinra Suzuki named Isan Dorsey. And, um, 
when he was in the hospital dying, someone came up to him crying and said, we're, we're really upset about this and we're going to miss you so much. And he opened his eyes and he said, where are you going? <laughs> the point is death is not at arm's length. It's right here all the time. We only experience our life moment to moment, but we're constantly trying to grab onto it and grasp it, especially within our close relationships. We're trying to grasp it and like hold it in some way or react to it in some way. But as soon as you exhale, that moment is over. Like you don't ever get that again. And as soon as you inhale, this moment's fresh. And every single person in this room has thought about this and has heard this before. But like we have to hear it again and again and again and again and again. Because it helps uh, light your life up. To be reminded all the time that it's so fleeting. Every time you exhale, you let go of that. Whatever was in this moment, you let go of it. And this is so good for healing bitterness, you know. When uh, Wittgenstein was uh, dying, he knew he was going to die. And in the last month, do you know Wittgenstein's work here? I don't know. Anyways, he was this smart guy. When he was dying, he spent the last month uh, of, his, of his life writing about color. He wrote endlessly about his experience of color. And that's a really good practice. When you look really closely at color, it brings attention and depth to the present moment. I have a friend who's a writing teacher. And she says, whenever you can, stop and look around as if you had to write about this moment in two years from now. So I would say the same thing. Like, imagine in two years, you had to paint this room. So be in this room as if you had to paint this room in two years. And so it's interesting that Wittgenstein's dying and the practice he takes up is to write about colors and his experience of how color isn't really in the world and it really isn't in your eye. And he was interested in where do you see the color? Is it really in the eye or is it really in the... And do you know what his conclusion was? I won't say. <laughs> And the same with your breathing. Where's your breathing? Is it in the world? Is it in your body? Where are your thoughts? Are they in your brain? Where's your brain? Any good neuroscientist will tell you that your brain is mostly made up of chemicals and hormones and so on, which means your brain's not in your head. And that your brain's also relational. Literally, your brain is a relational brain. And the only reason why we have spiritual practice is because we're going to die. 
And somehow we have to come to terms with this mystery of what it means to feel alive. And knowing that because we're alive, we can think about death. And when you're dead, you can't think about death that we know of. Because you don't know what's going to happen when you die. Because when you die, you're not here anymore. Or maybe that's not true. I don't know. I won't say. <laughs> so every moment then is a loss. And if, if you start to see how loss is at the heart of every moment, uh, our body, our wealth, our mental states, uh, our love, um, then this, this constant loss is also liberation. It's also freedom from grasping. And it's the basis of how we love each other. It's like aware of this constant loss that's at the heart of our relationships. Let me just tell you a story. You might have heard this one. Dao Wu and Qian Yan went to a house to make a condolence call. Yuan hit the coffin. And can you picture, this is like the funniest story. I don't know why you're not laughing. It's the funniest story. And said, alive or dead? And Wu, his teacher, said, I won't say alive, I won't say dead. Now, in Robert Aitken's translation of this, he says, I can't say I like that a bit better. I can't say alive, I can't say dead. The first day that I was here, um, Robert and I went for a long walk through the Jewish museum, uh, the Jewish cemetery, the big one. 120,000 tombstones there, something like that. <clears throat> so at first it's just a cemetery, you know, it's old. There's really beautiful leaves. There's really beautiful old trees. Um, there's tombstones. Some falling apart, some buried, you know. And then after a while, I start looking around, and all the last names are the same last names as all the people I grew up with in Canada, in a small Jewish community in Toronto. All the same last names. Like, oh my God, that's, those are the Winters. Those are the Goldsteins. Those are, hey, wait. And then there was one uh, street in the cemetery that we walked down, one path, where I knew everybody, like just the last names. I was like, oh, there's so-and-so. And everybody was alive. And I think all of us have had people in our lives who died maybe when we were young, who, as we age, we think about them more than maybe we ever even had contact with them. Somehow they're more alive in us. Or, um, if you're someone who's uh, in tune with your body, you start to realize as you age, don't tell anybody this in California, but you start to realize as you age that you're turning into your parents. Your body is starting to look like your mom. 
I'm sorry to bear the news. <laughs> but you're heading in that direction, and it's a really, you slide really quick. <laughs> Once you're in your 50s, it's over. You're basically turning into your ancestors, and you can do all the, like, uh, haushka stuff. <laughs> Which is really expensive, by the way. Do you know how much this stuff costs? It's really expensive. You could never afford this if you were a yoga teacher. And suddenly, these people who were dead are also totally alive. You have trouble with alcohol, and then you learn some family history. And you find out, oh my God, my grandparents had trouble with alcohol in kind of the same way. You know? Or like things were really good and then you hit your mid-30s, you can't sleep well, and you start worrying a lot. And then one day you think, oh my God, this is exactly like my mother or my grandmother. Right? And you see this like tremendous weight of genetics. Right? Alive or dead? You can't say. Yuan said, why won't you say? And Wu said, I won't say. And then as they were walking back, halfway back, Yuan said, teacher, you have to tell me right away. If you don't tell me, I'll hit you. And Wu, the teacher, said, you can hit me, but I can't say. And Yuan hit him. A little while later, he went to another teacher, Shuang, told him this story, and said, Alive or dead? And Shuang said, I won't say alive. Or if you do the Aitken translation, I can't say dead. I can't say. It's like if you're with someone when they die, they're dead. But you can't say. And then if you have the opportunity to be with a corpse, like for the next 24 hours, it's like they're dead. It's hard to, you can't say. Like they're dead. You would agree. They're dead. They're totally, but some, there's some, you can't say exactly. Can't say alive, can't say dead. And then if you wonder about their experience of dying, when they were in the experience of dying, you, they couldn't say. No one dies and then like opens their eyes and go, okay, like now that's really the end. Like a performance, you know, they do the encore, they close, everyone stands up, they clap, and then they come out again, you know. <laughs> and then Yuan's heart suddenly opened. He understood what was being pointed at. So the story goes on. Yuan, uh, who's the student who had the insight, uh, comes into the meditation hall. So picture everyone's in the meditation hall. Has anybody here been to China or Japan? You know these formal rooms, and then there's like an elevated area in the front with the altar. And so he, he, Yuan comes in with a hoe and starts walking back and forth, east to west, west to east, back and forth. With a hoe. So everyone's in meditation. Imagine this guy with a hoe. And the teacher said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking for the sacred bones of our late master. 
of his first teacher. He's going to dig them up. I'm looking for the sacred bones. So this is actually, you need to know the reference here, which is um, in the Zen tradition, it was said that um, teachers who had really deep practices, meditative practices, um, created in their bodies little treasures or jewels. And when they died and they were cremated, uh, students would comb through or if they were buried, someone would dig up with a hoe to find the body, and they would go through the body trying to find silver and gold and precious jewels that were uh, created in their uh, meditative practice. So if you feel kind of like in poverty, <laughs> you should just uh, practice more. Little jewels will start to appear uh, inside your body. Like if you feel you can't leave any money for your kids because you're a yoga teacher, <laughs> you should just practice more. Yeah. One commentary on the story is, uh, why was he looking for the sacred bones? They still exist, they're right here. Like he missed it. They're right here. It's what I always say to people that, you know, the mind of the Buddha is uh, this mind that you have when your reactivity settles and your breath relaxes and you're right here. That's the same mind as the Buddha. And we call that mind-to-mind -mind transmission or Dharma transmission. It's not that there's some special guru who gives you some power. You might still believe in that. That's not my thing. But that when you practice, you find the mind of the Buddha right here. You don't have to dig anything up. There's a right here. Most of us feel really secure just with uh, certain friends or certain family, certain neighborhoods. But uh, what we're being taught here is um, just to be secure in moments, to not be afraid of moments, to not be afraid of time. That every moment is your home. How to embody that. When I came out of the airport and Robert was coming towards me to pick me up, I had my suitcase, I noticed this habit. I was looking around for my kids to see if they were like taking off somewhere. And then they weren't there because I came here by myself. So in that moment, um, I'm not a dad. I'm not a teacher. I'm just a walker with luggage meeting Robert. You see? So we have these habits and they influence our persona, how we think of ourselves. But just to be in the moment. And that's another key in the story is like right now. Hello? So.
I hope that all of you um, this weekend can uh, be open to exploring together some uh, movement practices that we're going to investigate so that we can wake up uh, our body, our minds, <coughs> and notice uh, how much habit energy there is in all of our sense organs. And, and, and really wake them up. And then also uh, we're going to do some stillness practice and to allow yourself to feel what it's like um, to uh, settle underneath the construct of your identity. Not to meditate uh, inside your identity. But actually to feel what it's like to, to get quiet and um, to have a break from this identity that we're so uh, obsessed with. Your age, your gender, your um, past, your future, your social relationships. All that stuff's so important, you know? It's so important to have a really good understanding of your gender and a really good understanding of what it means to be your age, to act your age. And at the same time, it's so interesting how we, when we get still, none of that stuff matters at all. In fact, it's not even a reference point. What a relief, eh? to, have, to hold both those things. The importance of an identity and also really somatically experiencing what it's like um, to see through that. Because then you can start putting those things together and enjoying your identity a little more. Like, um, becomes kind of funny. <laughs> I even thought that if this went well, then on Sunday, we could uh, dress in Halloween costumes, <laughs> which I hear is against the law in Berlin this year. But um, I thought that we could dress up as like our favorite yoga teacher. <laughs> what do you think? Like, like, a, like a yoga journal person. You know how in all sports they have trading cards? Like baseball, they have baseball cards, and hockey, they have hockey cards. They should do this with yoga, like with the person's stats and their measurements, and <laughs> how many covers they've been on, which poses they do and don't do, their injuries. You know, in baseball, they like have all the stats about the injuries. Do you think we should do this? Yeah. this be hilarious? <laughs> so, um, let me sum up just by saying that um, most of the time, uh, because all of us are so educated and psychological and so on, we're always putting so much energy into trying to figure out what's going on for us and figure out what's happening in our heads and figure out what we think about our practice and figure out our business and figure out our relationships. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? And like one of the great gifts about the teachings of yoga, the teachings of Zen also, 
is a kind of awakening to the immediacy of this moment and the realization that the present moment is too large for you to ever understand. You can't understand it. And so there's a certain point where we need practices that are alternatives to just the understanding mind that's trying to create a narrative to make sense of the, the moment and how in a way that can be so narrow and keep us going in circles. So when the teacher says, I can't say, I can't say, it's not that the teacher doesn't know, it's that the teacher can't know. I can't say. And the student is like still trying to know, you know, trying to know. Students like, and the teacher saying, so hit me. I still, I can't know. I can't know. So, I think it might be nice if we take just like a five minute break and then um, have a little discussion about this. What do, you, what do you think? That sound okay? So, thank you. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.